Hey everyone, and welcome to Sincerely Letty. I'm your host, Letty Shumate, here to bring you truth and knowledge about history, racial justice, and more to help you connect the dots and see the bigger picture that is so necessary in our society today. Welcome back for another episode. I hope everyone's September has been off to a positive start. I didn't do an episode last week because, well, just needed a break. I mean, (laughs) there's no fancy way to say that. (laughs) But um, yeah, I am really excited about today's episode because I'm going to do something a little bit differently. Well, actually, it's not too different from what I did a few weeks ago whenever I talked about Kathleen Cleaver. Um, and I read Women, Power, and Revolution. Um, I'm going to read some James Baldwin today. And really, I chose to do this because this month's uh, Lessons with Letty on my Patreon, which if you're a part of my Patreon community at the Angela Davis tier or above, you can access my Lessons with Letty. But this month, I titled my lessons, The Brilliance of James Baldwin. So I'm going to be going through and just each week providing in-depth looks at his writings, some of his interviews. Um, I'm going to be providing some documents that you may not have access to. You may not even know that he said these things. I feel like a lot of James Baldwin's words, a lot of his work, a lot of his writings are known, but there's also a ton that's not known. So anyway, that's also a plug to tell you to become a member of my Patreon community so you can access the lessons. Because I'm really excited, y'all, because James Baldwin is my man. And that's why I wanted to take some time today to just read some of what he said, just some excerpts from interviews Um, in the 60s and the 70s. But before I jump into all that good stuff, I do want to share some stuff with y'all. Just some updates. Just kind of want to rant for a minute. I'm really excited because I finally got my diploma in the mail uh, for my second master's degree. This one is in conflict management and resolution. So I'm so happy to finally have it. I know that it's a piece of paper. I know. But you know that feeling of like, oh, it's like official now. So yeah, yay to that. And I'm just, y'all, I don't even know how often I've talked about it on the podcast, but I'm so grateful that I went back and got that second master's because it has nothing to do with me wanting to be able to say, oh, I have two master's degrees. I have one in history and one in this. Like, no, not necessarily. Really, it was one of those things in my life where I honestly had no idea why God was telling me to go back to school to get this degree because all I kept thinking was, oh, so I got to get more student loan debt because I don't have thousands of dollars to go back to grad school. And I wanted to get it done in two years. So, you know, going full time and all the, all the things that takes. But this program was not nearly as rigorous as my master's in history because that thing, whew, that was intense. But this program, I'm so grateful for it because it just really taught me how to communicate better Um, in a deeper way. Like, yes, I can mediate conversations. I can facilitate conversations, yes. But I also learned so much about trauma and connected it to racial trauma. I learned a lot um, of skills with, like, negotiating and 
uh, how emotions work, uh, how people are and are not receptive to things. And really that's helped me become, not really become, that's the wrong word. Really it's helped me see how to, okay, I'm trying to figure out how to say this. (laughs) I'm not even going to edit this out. But um, really just helped me become the anti-racism educator that I am beyond the knowledge that I already had about being an anti-racism educator, if that makes sense. Because I already, while getting my, my master's in history and becoming a historian, had to learn about communication and being effective and standing firm and um, saying things directly. But this, yeah, y'all, I'm just grateful. So if anyone out there is thinking about going back to school and getting another degree or you're afraid or you just don't know if it's worth it or you you just don't understand... I'm here to tell you that I didn't understand either, but looking back, hindsight is always 2020. And in my case, I feel like it's like 2025 or something because now I'm like, wow, that's why I was supposed to go back to school. So yeah, that happened. I also uh, want to say that in Wilmington, North Carolina, the NAACP put up this Black Lives Matter billboard, which was fantastic and I know that people say things like oh you know like that's that's great and all but what about taking action and yeah I do get that but if you all understood what this actually meant beyond that um for Wilmington we had previously wanted a Black Lives Matter mural done and um a couple of racist white men on city council in Wilmington decided that they didn't want to do that and they were complaining about it and so they wanted it so then like basically what happened was um, a black gentleman who is a city council member settled for saying black lives do matter and y'all know that's not the same thing right so anyway long story short this big run around because y'all know how it is there's this big run around don't really want to do it trying to find a reason to say that we don't need it and so Last week, the NAACP had this billboard put up that also said, paid for by the New Hanover County NAACP. And I was like, that's some serious shade right there, but necessary. And it just really made me feel good, y'all, to to see it. It made me feel good to um, see that, like, just to see that jab at, like, we don't need your white supremacy coins anyway. So... <laughs> And I hate to put it that way, but I also don't hate to put it that way because it's true. It's It just is what it is. So yeah, I just wanted to share that with y'all because obviously I was excited about both. Um, and also, if you're not following me on social media, please do at Sincerely.Letty on Instagram. I've also tried to get into Twitter more because I should probably do that because I feel like everyone else does. So um, not to be uh, going to follow the crowd just because, but also because... Uh, There's a lot happening on Twitter with social justice, racial justice, Black Lives Matter as well, and just in another avenue. So follow me there, and I'm on Facebook too. So yeah, and y'all, as I continuously say, know that this is not just a moment, right? Black Lives Matter is not just a moment. Um, This is not trendy, I've noticed so much momentum has died down and 
really since this summer and it's it's not just about George Floyd y'all it's it's not just about Ahmaud Arbery it's not just about Breonna Taylor Jacob Blake it's about all of them yes and and the continuous uh, systemic racism and white supremacy that constantly permeates our society and I've had so many people share with me just how they were so oblivious to true history and um, that's why I connect the dots though y'all that's why I do this is so that you can learn because you may not know what to look for and you may not know how not to take things at face value whenever it comes to history and racial issues and there have just been so many people who are defending um, white supremacists, right? Like Kyle Rittenhouse. Um, and I'm not going to get on that. I can be on that for a whole episode, but I'm not. But know that the deputizing of white people in America is nothing new, okay? Like I said in my last podcast episode, None of this stuff is new. It just looks a little bit different. The system is not broken. It was made to operate this way. And I want y'all to always remember that with everything. Literally anything. <laughs> and it's hard to believe that, right? And it's uncomfortable to want to accept that fact. But it's a fact. And it's rooted in, I mean, it's rooted in history. Um, but really seeing beyond reading between the lines okay is something that and actually this leads into today's podcast um james baldwin and what he said and i just love reading james baldwin so much i mean i can read the same thing by him over and over and over again and get something different every time and so that's why i want to read some of this for you all today and to be honest with y'all, I'm not even going to go into a lot of uh, dissecting what he said and explaining it because if you want to know more, join my Patreon. But I want you to take the time to hear beyond like what he's saying, like hear what he's saying or hear what I'm saying that he said and un understand and know that there is so much depth to it. So the first excerpt I'm going to read to you is from an interview that occurred on May 24th, 1963 between James Baldwin and Kenneth Clark. And if you don't know who Kenneth Clark is, Google him. But I will tell you that at the time, he was a professor of psychology at the City College of New York. And this is just titled A Conversation with James Baldwin. And it actually occurred after James Baldwin had had a meeting with the then Attorney General Robert Kennedy and also Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X both had separate interviews with Kenneth Clark as well. So let's go ahead and jump right in. At one point, Kenneth Clark asked James Baldwin, what do you think can be done to change, to use your term, the moral fiber of America. Baldwin replied and said, I think that one has got to find some way of putting the present administration of this country on the spot. One has got to force somehow from Washington a moral commitment not to Negro people, but to the life of this country. 
it doesn't matter any longer. And I'm speaking for myself, James Baldwin. And I think I'm speaking for a great many other Negroes too. It doesn't matter any longer what you do to me. You can put me in jail. You can kill me. By the time I was 17, you had done everything that you can to me. The problem now is, how are you going to save yourselves? Later on, Kenneth Clark says, Could you react to the student nonviolent movement, which has made such an impact on America, which has affected both Negroes and whites, and seems to have jolted them out of the lethargy of tokenism and moderation? How do you account for this? Baldwin said, Well, one of the things I think has happened, Ken, is that the Negro has never been as docile as white Americans wanted to believe. That was a myth. We were not singing and dancing down on the levee. We were trying to keep alive. We were trying to survive. It was a very brutal, brutal system. The Negro has never been happy in his place. What those kids, first of all, proved, first of all, they proved that they come from a long line of fighters. And what they also prove is not that the Negro has changed, but that the country has arrived at a place where, we, where he can no longer contain the revolt. Let's say I was a Negro college president and I needed a new chemistry lab. I was a Negro leader. I was a Negro leader because the white man said I was. And I came to get a, a new chemistry lab, please, sir. And the price I paid for the chemistry lab was to control the people I represented. And now I can't do that. We were talking to a Negro student this, this evening who had been through it all, who's half dead and only about 25, Jerome Smith. That's an awful lot to ask a person to bear. The country sat back in admiration of all those kids for three or four or five years and has not lifted a finger to help them. Now, we all knew I know you knew, and I knew that a moment was coming when we couldn't guarantee that no one can guarantee that he won't reach the breaking point. You can only survive so many beatings, so much humiliation, so much despair, so many broken promises before something gives. Human beings are not, by nature, nonviolent. Those children had to pay a terrible price in discipline, moral discipline, an interior effort of courage which the country cannot imagine. And y'all, I'm going to stop here and just tell you the children that he's referring to are black students who are protesting um, segregation. Okay. So, Kenneth Clark then says, you said something that you cannot expect them to remain constantly nonviolent. Baldwin said, no, you can't. And furthermore, they were always, these students that we are talking about, a minority. The students we are talking about were not in Tallahassee. They were some students protesting, but there were many, 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 many more students who had given up, who were desperate. Later on, James Baldwin says, I'm forced to be an optimist. I'm forced to believe that we can survive whatever we must survive, but the future of the Negro in this country is precisely as bright or as dark as the future of the country. It is entirely up to the American people and our representatives. It is entirely up to the American people whether or not they are going to face and deal with and embrace the stranger whom they maligned so long. 
So yeah, there's a little bit from that interview with Baldwin and the part where he said that black people in America are not docile, right? Are not as docile as white Americans think. The first thing I thought of whenever I ever read that, and I continue to think that each time I read it, is Langston Hughes' poem where he's talking about how black people are perceived as being meek and docile. In March 1967, James Baldwin did an interview for a Turkish monthly magazine, which basically reported about international news. And in 1967, y'all, America was like international news. I mean, what was happening in our country was known worldwide. I mean, I could go into so much detail about that, but what was happening in our country with civil rights and police brutality and the hypocrisy of our nation, I mean, you had countries looking at us like, what are y'all doing? Has much changed? No, hasn't. So, anyway, (laughs) this is titled, James Baldwin Breaks His Silence. And this person who was talking to him said, what do you think about black power? and other recent developments in the civil rights movement in the United States. Who do you feel are the most effective people and also organizations in the civil rights movement right now? James Baldwin replied, A great deal of hysterical and also indefensible nonsense has been written about black power. It is a phrase which refers to an honored canon of Western thought, the self-determination of people. It means nothing more than that. To limit ourselves only to the events of the last decade, the Negro in America has marched, protested, pleaded, sung, put his body before trucks and tractors, put his body before guns and hoses and dogs, put his body before billy clubs, put his body before chains, put his body in prisons where one would hesitate to house a pig, sent his children out to be beaten and spat upon and driven mad, has petitioned Washington ceaselessly, ceaselessly, has seen his women humiliated, kicked, beaten, and sometimes they were pregnant women, his heroes who were his hope destroyed and his children blown to bits before his eyes. And the result of all of this, the response of the American people, the only response has been panic, rhetoric, and lies. The ghetto is more heavily policed than it has ever been before, more brutally and more blatantly oppressed. As of this writing, and after all those prayers and petitions and bombings, neither the Negro child nor the Negro parent has anything resembling a future. The child has no school and the father has no job, and neither is likely to be supplied soon, no matter what the liberals say. The brutal fact is that the, is that the economy does not know how to make room for the Negro. It does not have room, after all, for many, many white people. And it would not know how, even if the bulk of the population were less brainwashed than it is. The American people are paying the price for the lie concerning Negro inferiority, which they have told themselves so long and which they have persuaded themselves is the truth. But the legend came about only to afford moral justification for slavery. 
If you buy and sell a man like an animal, then you must persuade yourself that he is an animal. The terrible thing about this dynamic is that the man who is being used like an animal exerts all his energy in not becoming one, while the man who is so using him fatally descends in the human scale and becomes something much worse than an animal. Black power means the recognition that neither the American government nor the American people have any desire or, or any ability to liberate Negroes or, which comes to exactly the same thing, themselves. Well, the job must be attempted. We must save ourselves. If we can. And if we can save ourselves, we can also save the country. It is now absolutely and literally true that the American Negro is America's only hope. As for organizations, I hope to continue working with SNCC. And y'all, SNCC stood for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. But did you hear the power in his words? I mean, honestly, just if you have to go back and rewind this and listen to what he said again, do that. Because in this book that I have, which is a book of conversations James Baldwin had, this is a page and a half, but I feel like I could write 20 pages on just what he said and just go through the depth of it. And whew, I'm telling y'all, the man was brilliant. <laughs> and the last excerpt I'm going to read is from an interview James Baldwin did in 1970. And this was, with, this was with a man named John Hall. And Hall asked him, well, said to him, I know you are working on a long essay about the civil rights movement in America. Your last essay, The Fire Next Time, concluded that white liberals and relatively conscious blacks must work together to bring an end to the country's racial nightmare. Does that conclusion still hold good in the light of subsequent events? And y'all, just for reference, James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time was written in 1963. So this conversation is happening seven years later. So Baldwin's response to his question was, I still hold that viewpoint. I still believe that. But the price will be high higher than I might have thought whenever I wrote that. And high, I mean, in terms of human life. Nothing has altered in America, except that white people have simply raised the price and raised it so high that fewer and fewer black people will be willing to pay it. That jeopardizes everything we hope for and everything the white man hopes for. It jeopardizes the future of the civilization. The presence of, of a man like Nixon in the White House is an unmitigated disaster, not only for black people in this country, but for all the white hopes too, because it confirms and makes official and it seals this attitude that is essentially a racist attitude. But it is also, on a most sinister level, an attitude which is simply designed to turn the clock back, to hold back the sea. And you know that can't be done. What people in power never understand is what people out of power are determined to do. And what people out of power are determined to do is, first of all, to survive you, to withstand you, and if they have to, kill you. 
and they have the advantage because they have nothing to lose. The will of the American people, they believe, is like the voice of God. Well, the voice of God spoke out a couple of years ago and put Nixon in the White House and, and put Ronald Reagan in the governor's mansion, and it endures Spiro T. T. Agnew. And the effect on the American people of the presence of such men in high office is that they are justified in their bigotry. They are confirmed in their ignorance. They are all smaller or greater John Waynes. I could read so much more that James Baldwin said, but I'm going to leave it at that because I want you all to take the time to listen to James Baldwin, to read his work, and like I said already, join my Patreon and uh, get in on this month's weekly lessons. The next one comes out this coming Sunday, and I'll be going even more in depth about certain writings and conversations that are lesser known, that people don't know that much about. You know, I mean, this book of conversations I have with James Baldwin go all the way up to the year that he passed away, which was 1987. And if you take the time to read him, right, to, to read his words, rather, you'll see the consistency in what he's saying, and you'll see so much of America today. I mean, he was truly before his time, and yeah, I mean, y'all already know. I could go on and on, but I'm going to leave it at that, and definitely, as I've always said to y'all, please do share my podcast um, please do subscribe, rate, review, follow me, all of the fun things, because I want y'all to learn. Y'all need to keep doing the work. You need to continue to be on your anti-racism journey and take care of yourselves also. Um, call out your racist family members. Call out your racist friends. Call out the racist system. And just like James Baldwin has said, the price of doing that is very high. That's what he meant by the price of the ticket. Um, but you can't continue to be complicit and to just think that someone else is going to do it, right? Or, oh, I don't have to speak up because someone else is going to speak up. No. What are you doing? What are you individually doing to change the terror that we see happening in our country? So anyway, y'all, as always, until next time.